and welcome to the second episode of Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast. My name is Derek V. Trout, and it's my pleasure to have you join me today. In episode one, I started in the only place that made sense to me, the Matrix. We started there because of the parallels to the Gospels and because of the Christ figure that Neo is, as well as the other various theological themes throughout the film. The idea for this podcast originally started with that movie, so that's where we began with The Matrix. However, I still have more to say about The Matrix. I I feel like the more that I've had discussions with people about the first episode and the more that I've conversed with some people, I realize that I missed a lot. I missed more than I thought I did. So I'm already kicking around this idea of thinking maybe somewhere down the line of having a Matrix Revisited episode. That's not going to be for a while. It's not really on the radar of any plans. That's just something I've been thinking about. So thank you all for the feedback, suggestions, or conversations that I've had with you from the first episode. Keep that coming. I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. In episode two, we are going to go to the only place that makes sense to me to travel to this time. And we're going to go to a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But before we get there, let me tell you a little bit more about myself as we continue to get to know one another. Last time I introduced myself with some qualifications and Aristotle's modes of persuasion. Today, let me just tell you a little bit about who I am and something that is very important to me, and that is my family. My wife and I will celebrate 14 years of marriage in May of 2022, and I would not want to be going through this journey of life with anyone else. She is truly fantastic and beautiful in every way. Thank you, Jessica. You are the best. Together we have two children that are 9 and 10 years old, but really they're closer to being 10 and 11. They're both great kids. My daughter is creative and artistic and smart and beautiful. She's also a baller, so that's fun, getting her to go out and seeing her play hoops out on the court. I enjoy that. My son is love and kind, thinking of others before himself. He's also creative and intelligent, a very analytical kind of thinker, likes computers and video games and robotics and Legos. And he too likes to play basketball, so it's great to watch them out on the court and to be able to play some sports together with them. I think knowing about my family for you is important because they are one of the most important things in my life. And given the chance, I like to tell about them and how much I love them and how proud I am of them and what they mean to me. So something very important about me that I I just thought that I would share with the rest of you. And just giving you a little bit more about who I am and kind of a glimpse into my life. So with just that little bit, and we'll probably do this every time for the first few episodes, I'll tell you a little bit more about myself and who I am as we continue to get to know each other. And so I think that'll be fun. But with that being said, let's dive into the world of the Force and lightsabers as we now travel to a long, long time ago a galaxy far, far away. Star Wars. And it makes sense to go to Star Wars because Episode 4, A New Hope, is the most influential science fiction movie that's ever been made. There's no other movie that's more influential, in my opinion, than A New Hope, which is the one that we'll be looking at today. Written and directed by George Lucas, A New Hope is the star of the blockbuster science fiction movie craze. And the movie that legitimized science fiction on the big screen is part of mainstream pop culture. Big screen sci-fi is where it is today because of Star Wars. So we have to discuss it. The movies that we have today have its basis in that that we see within the beautiful genre of science fiction. So we need to go there. And not only 
because of the theological themes that are seen within the films, that's an important reason to go here, but also just because of how important the Star Wars film franchise is to overall to the genre of science fiction. And A New Hope is going to be the sole focus of the episode today. Maybe later we'll get into other movies or maybe have a, have a season of Star Wars, but for today we're only discussing episode four, A New Hope. And right from the beginning, we already see a biblical and theological theme, hope, a new hope. But we're going to save that and get into that in just a little bit. First, however, we must pause and give the obligatory spoiler alert warning. Even though I'm not sure a spoiler alert should be necessary for a movie that is nearly 45 years old. Crazy to think that, that, is, that Star Wars is nearly 45 years old. But nonetheless, we've given the spoiler alert, we've given that warning, you have been warned, you are going to learn some about Star Wars A New Hope and even some of the other Star Wars films, so you've been warned, lots of spoilers to come. A New Hope is rated PG, and personally I see no reason why the content of this film should not be approved for people of all ages to watch. My kids have watched Star Wars from the time they were very little, two or three years old, and I see no reason why they wouldn't be able to. There's nothing in A New Hope that I wouldn't want them to see or that I wouldn't want them to hear. So I give it the stamp of approval for people of all ages to watch. But as always, do your own research and decide what is best for you and your family. Decide what that's going to be and what that is. Personally, I have no problem with Star Wars with my own children uh, watching it. So, so I think we're good there. So the movie begins, and right away you have that epic Star Wars music playing, and the scroll on the screen tells us, that, tells us that this is a time of civil war, and that the rebels have just won their first victory against the evil Galactic Empire, and that during this battle the rebels have stolen the plans for the ultimate weapon, the Death Star. Now before we see a single character on screen, the scene is set. We have good versus evil. And it's interesting here that the rebels are the good guys. Usually rebels are associated with being the bad guys. They're associated with going and trying to go against the norm or trying to uh, go outside the bounds of a society. They're, they're rebelling against something. A lot of time, I, I think that sometimes we look at the rebels as the bad guys, but that is not the case in Star Wars. And I would argue that as followers of Jesus Christ, we should all have some rebel in us. We should all have some of that rebellion within us. And what we should re be rebelling against, what we should be a rebel against, is sin. In Romans 12, 1 through 2, we read this. So, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly service. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what is God's will, what is good and pleasing and mature. Here in Romans we read, don't conform to the patterns of this world. If I were to translate this myself, perhaps I could use this phrase here, rebel against the patterns of this world. Rebel against the sin that is in this world. Don't give in to that. Re rebel against sin and darkness and evil. And then in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, we read this. Don't be conformed to your former desires, those that shaped you when you were ignorant. But as obedient children, you must be holy in every aspect of your lives. Just as the one who called you is holy, it is written, you will be holy, 
because I am holy. Again, putting my own little bit of a translation on this, I would say rebel against your former desires. Rebel against sin and be obedient in every aspect of your life because God has said you will be holy as I am holy. We should all have some of that rebellion within us as followers of Jesus. And what we should be rebelling against is sin, is against this world. However, sometimes, because we have some of that rebellion within us, we all have that. We just need to focus it towards the right thing. But sometimes we get in trouble because we don't just rebel against sin. We rebel against God. We rebel against the way that things, the, the things that God wants us to do and, and when we do what we want to do. So, so we have that rebellious kind of nature within us. And are we going to direct that towards God or are we going to direct that towards sin? And that's really the focus as Christians is to channel that rebellion and to rebel against our former desires, to rebel against sin, to, uh, to, to, to go and look at that and uh, rebel against the patterns of this world. Uh, we just have to be careful what it is we're rebelling against and not turn that towards God because that potential is within us, but we should all have a little bit of rebel in us. Back to the movie. And we read that Princess Leia is racing home with the stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. And then that's it for the scroll. And we see this amazing image of a star destroyer come across screen and it's shooting at a small ship that has the droids R2-D2 and C-3PO aboard, as well as Princess Leia. And this opening screen, though, with that Star Destroyer is just so amazing. It just comes across screen, and it keeps coming and coming and coming. And it's such a big, huge spaceship, and it's just an amazing way to, to start the on-screen action here in Star Wars. They're shooting at this tiny little ship with R2-D2, C-3PO, and Princess Leia aboard. Their ship is captured by the Star Destroyer and stormtroopers get in a fight against the rebel troops. And perhaps for the first and only time in Star Wars history, the stormtroopers are accurate. They actually hit something with their blaster. I wasn't sure that this was even possible, but when we see them overtake this ship that Leia is on, they actually do a really good job. They're actually accurate. They actually take out some people. I, I couldn't believe it seeing it. I think it's the, the most accurate stormtroopers have ever been on screen in Star Wars history. Then we see Leia giving R2 a disc, and then she sneaks off to hide. Here we're also introduced to Darth Vader as he chokes one of the rebels and demands to know where the Death Star plans are at. When the man says he doesn't know... Vader demands the ship be torn apart and the plans found. But R2 and C-3PO have already escaped on in an escape pod. Then Leia, Princess Leia is captured and Vader accuses her of being part of the rebellion. And they can't find the plan, so Vader orders someone to retrieve the escape pod since he's sure that Leia has hidden the plans on that pod. Then R2-D2 and C-3PO land on a desert planet and they go their separate ways since they can't agree which way to go. I really like the relationship between R2-D2 and C-3PO. It's fun. R2-D2 is great. He's a really fun character. Even though he never says anything, he still has so much personality. And I know that C-3PO sometimes annoys people. He's been called the uh, second most annoying character in the Star Wars universe, number one, of course, being Jar Jar Binks. Uh, but C-3PO, sometimes it's been said, gives him a run for his money, but I like C-3PO even though he perhaps can be a bit annoying and whiny. 
But it's kind of funny here that they can't agree on which way to go, so they just go their separate ways as they're bickering back and forth with another. But then R2 is captured, and we see that C-3PO has already been captured by the Jawas, so they are quickly reunited. And then the Jawas go to the Starwalker farm and sell the droids that we've come to know to Luke and his uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. And then C-3PO goes with Luke down to a room somewhere on the farm, and as he goes down into this room, he, he gets on something, and this is what he says. He gets on something that's going to lower him down into oil, and what he says here is, C-3PO says, Thank the Maker this oil bath is going to feel so good. Thank the Maker this oil bath is going to feel so good. It's kind of a throwaway line, but I think a really interesting line. And honestly, I never noticed this line until I actually read the script of A New Hope preparing for this podcast. So I went and read the script, and that's when this line stood out to me, something that I had never really noticed before, something that's just kind of said in the background and and skipped over. Now, obviously, C-3PO is a droid, and he has a maker. So it's understandable that he would say, thank the maker. But we too, even as humans, we can say something like, thank the maker because we also have someone who has made us we too have a maker god almighty the maker of heaven and earth just the way c3po was constructed we too we humans have been constructed by god he is the creator he is the maker in psalm 139 verses 13 through 14 uh, the psalmist says this to god You are the one who created my innermost parts. You knit me together while I was still in my mother's womb. I give thanks to you that I was marvelously set apart. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. We could go into this more and proofs and reasons to believe that God is the creator of everything, but we're going to save that for another episode. We'll get into that at another time, I'm sure. For this episode, I believe that our time would be spent focusing on other topics, but I found this very interesting this line here that c3po would say thank the maker this oil bath is going to feel so good and how we too can say something similar because we have someone who has made us so right there's a a theme that we see with just kind of a line that's set in the background that doesn't get paid much attention to by c3po next luke finds a recording of leia saying help me obi-wan kenobi you're my only hope that very famous line help me obi-wan kenobi You're my only hope. So here's where we'll pause to focus on this theme of hope. The title of the film, A New Hope, and this well-known, often quoted line of Leah, Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Both of those speak of what we as Christians have. We have hope. Now for Leah, Obi-Wan appears to be her only hope. In reality, the only hope for any of us to be saved from sin is Jesus Christ. Help me, Jesus. You're my only hope. It is here that we first see that Obi-Wan is a Christ figure, and we'll get into more of that later, how Obi-Wan is a Christ figure in this film. But but Leia reaching out to him as her only hope speaks to the analogy between him being a Christ figure and us as Christians, and, and truly the world looking to Jesus as our only hope. There's some similarities there. But the kind of hope that Leia is talking about is not the same hope that we have as Christians. It's not the same thing as Christian hope. 
Hope, according to the Google machine, is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen, or a person or thing that may help or save someone. So clearly, Leia is talking about the second definition. Obi-Wan is her only hope to help her in the fight against the evil empire. However, Christian hope is more than just an expectation or a desire for something to happen. And it's more than just a person that may help or save someone. Christian hope is more than that wishful expectation or a desire that something will or will not happen. Christian hope is a confident expectation that results from trusting God. A confident expectation that results from trusting God. It's not the common use of the word hope that expresses less certainty about the fulfillment of what is being hoped for. A good synonym for Christian hope would be Christian assurance. Hope for followers of Jesus is more than wishful thinking. It is certainty. It's assurance. It's being sure of who God is and that God will do what God has said he will do. Too many times with the word hope today, we could just as easily exchange it for wish or desire or a feeling that something good will happen or we just would really want this. No, that's not what we have as Christians. That's not what Christian hope is. We have more than that. We are confident. We are assured. We are certain in our expectation and trust of God that he is who he says he is. And that through his son, he offers us what is truly life, both in this world and in the one to come. Hope like this is only found in God through his son, Jesus Christ, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that we all want, that every person wants, is to have hope. We may all hope for something different or put our hope in different people or things, but nonetheless, we all hope. We all have hopes for this life and what we desire. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we all want to have hope that that this life isn't all there is. That there's more to life than being born and breathing and working and paying bills and taxes and then living out our days and just dying. If that's all life is about, if that's all life is to you, there's not much hope in that. But we all want to have hope. We all want to hope that things will get better. Hope that our situations improve. Hope that we ourselves will improve. We all place our hope in something with the desire that it will make our lives better or give our lives peace or give our life meaning or bring fulfillment or bring completeness or wholeness or that we will be saved. We all want hope for these things in life. And there's a lot of different things that people in this world put their hope in to try to get those things. But it truly only comes through one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 1.13, we read, Therefore, once you have your minds ready for action and are thinking clearly, place your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Jesus is our only hope. A new hope came, but not with Star Wars. It came with the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and was completed with his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and will ultimately culminate with his return to earth one day. Christians have a great hope that we can and will be forgiven of our sins, that we can enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and spend eternity with him in heaven. We have an assurance that Jesus is who he said he was, and that the biblical account of Jesus' life is true 
and reliable. That is where our hope comes from, is the scriptures, and believing what the scriptures say, and knowing those to be true, and knowing those to be reliable. So I think it will be beneficial here if we spend just a few moments talking about how we can be so certain that the biblical account of Jesus is reliable. How we can be so certain that what the Bible says about Jesus is true. We actually have many reasons for this, but we'll get into a, a few of them here. In the book, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel interviews Dr. Craig Blomberg, and he gives the following reasons that the biblical account of the life of Jesus is reliable. First of all, he's, Dr. Blomberg says, the testimony of the early church is that Matthew the tax collector and the disciple of Jesus wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Luke, known as Paul's beloved physician, wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And Mark, a friend of Peter, wrote the Gospel of Mark. There's no dispute in the early church that these gospel accounts were written by these authors. And the only one that has some dispute is the Gospel of John. And this is because of the writings of Papias, who was a Christian who lived around 125 AD. And he writes about John the Apostle, but he also writes about John the Elder. And when we look at Papias' writings, we can't exactly tell from the context if John the Elder is also John the Apostle, or if John the Apostle is somebody different than John the Elder. Are they the same person known by different names, or are they two different people? From the writings of Papias, we can't exactly tell this. But according to the rest of the testimony of the early church, it's John the Apostle who wrote the Gospel of John. It's just this one writing by Papias that's really unclear. But why is that important? Why is it important that the people who are said to have written these Gospel accounts, that their names are on, why is it important that they are the ones that actually wrote it? It's important because this means that the gospel accounts were either written by eyewitnesses. In the case of John and Matthew, we would have eyewitnesses writing about what they've experienced with Jesus and what they've seen. Or we would have people who knew eyewitnesses in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we either have people who are eyewitnesses writing the accounts, or we have people who knew eyewitnesses who are writing the accounts. Papias, the same writer that we just discussed, he also writes that Mark had carefully recorded Peter's eyewitness observations. And he said that Mark made no mistake and did not include any false statement. And then Papias also writes that Matthew had preserved the teachings of Jesus as well. So we have some corroboration here from the early church of who wrote this. And, and, and we would be able to know that people who had written these gospel accounts were either there or had spoken to people who were there. So we're relying on an eyewitness account, people who are there to actually see and experience these things. Dr. Blomberg goes on to reference the writings of Irenaeus in about 180 AD, uh, confirming the traditional authorship of the gospel accounts. And Irenaeus writes this, Matthew published his own gospel among the Hebrews in their own tongue when Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel in Rome and founding the church there. After their departure, Mark the disciple, an interpreter of Peter himself, handed down to us in writing the substance of Peter's preaching. Luke, the follower of Paul, set down in a book the gospel preached by his teacher. Then John, the disciple of the Lord, who also leaned on his breast himself, produced his gospel while he was living at Ephesus in Asia. Now this is from Irenaeus' letter titled, Against Heresies. So again, some early church corroboration of who wrote the Gospels and why that's so important because 
we have some either eyewitnesses or people who knew eyewitnesses. Again, it comes back to that, people actually being there, actually talking to people who were there. Dr. Blomberg also replies to the argument that the writing of the gospel accounts of Jesus are written so long after Jesus lived that there was time for legend or time for myth to develop in the biblical accounts of Jesus. This often relates to Jesus' miracles and his resurrection. So when Jesus goes and, and preaches sermons, preaches something like the Sermon on the Mount, there's not going to be too many people out there who have a great problem with what Jesus is preaching in terms of Jesus is just standing on a mountain and he's preaching. There's nothing supernatural happening there. There's no miraculous accounts. There's nothing that goes beyond the bounds of natural explanation. So when you look at something like the Sermon on the Mount, that's not really a concern for people here when they're looking at this idea of legend or myth. What they're really looking at when they make that objection is they're talking about miracles. So they're saying, well, the Gospels were written so long after Jesus that even if Jesus didn't really walk on water, there was enough time for the followers of Jesus to say that he did, for that myth to develop. Maybe he was just wading out in some shallow water, and over time it developed into this myth that he walked on water. Or, or there's a, the idea that, especially concerning the resurrection, that that happened, that the Gospels were written so long after the resurrection that that really didn't happen. The writers just put that in there later. So the Gospels were written long enough after Jesus lived to allow some time for myth and legend to develop within there. However, Dr. Blomberg explains that that's just not the case, that that just isn't a possibility. The standard scholarly dating is what Dr. Blom Dr. Blomberg says this, the standard scholarly dating, even in very liberal circles, is Mark in the 70s, Matthew and Luke in the 80s, and John in the 90s. Then he says, but listen, that's still within the lifetime of various eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus, including hostile witnesses who would have served as a corrective if false teaching about Jesus were going around. I think that's a really great point. And this is only looking at things 40 to 50, 60 years after Jesus was alive. There are people who had still been alive then to experience these things. If if Matthew, uh, if if Mark and, and Matthew are writing in the 70s and 80s, they're still alive to, to have seen those things, to have been there, or to talk to people who have been there. If John is writing in the 90s, John is still alive and experiences thing, these things that have happened in the 30s or, or, or around 30 A.D., so we can look at that and we can see that if John was still alive writing about these things, it's reasonable to believe that other people who've seen these things would have been alive as well. And it's very hard, if not impossible, to develop legendary writings within the lifetime of people who have been there to experience these things firsthand. People who have eyewitnessed these things. People who have been there. There's not enough time that has passed for these legends to develop. Dr. Blomberg also goes on to make the point that the biography of Alexander the Great was written more than 400 years after Alexander lived, but that his biographical account is considered to be generally trustworthy by most historians. 400 years later, generally trustworthy. But when it comes to Jesus, things are written only 40 to 60 years later. Well, I'm not so sure we can trust them. And why is that? because there's supernatural things that happen in the life of Jesus, because there's miracles that he do, that, that, that he does, because he is dead, but then he is alive. 
And that's a problem for some people. So they look at that and say, well, uh, we can't really count on that. But it doesn't make sense to, to have this argument that the Gospels were written so late that the myth or legend would have developed within them. That's just simply not the case. Dr. Blomberg also points out that the date for the many of the New Testament writings of Paul is in the late 40s or 50s. So it's believed that Paul was writing his letters before the gospel authors wrote their accounts. I know sometimes when we read something in the Bible, we think that probably it's written in some kind of chronological order in terms of when things were written. So when we start out the New Testament with the Gospels, we might assume that those were written first, but it's much more likely that Paul's writings were written before the Gospel accounts. Now, this is important because of the creed that Paul shares, that Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7. This is what we read. I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received. Christ died for our sins in line with the Scriptures. He was buried, and he rose on the third day in line with the Scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at once. Most of them are still alive to this day, even though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. This is a creed that Paul was taught, which is why he says in the beginning, I passed on to you what I received. I passed on to you as most important what I received. Here is what I've learned. Here's what I've been taught. And here's what we believe that happened with Jesus in terms uh, of his resurrection. I pass on to you what I received. Now, it's believed that the crucifixion of Jesus happened at approximately 30 AD. It could have been a, a few years within that. Some people put it in 33 AD, somewhere around there. But for, for the sake of this, let's say that the, that the crucifixion of Jesus happened at 30 AD. It's believed that Paul's conversion was in 32 AD, just a couple of years after the resurrection of Jesus. This means that Paul's first meeting with the apostles in Jerusalem would have been around 35 AD which is most likely when Paul would have learned this creed. So about five years after the death and resurrection, we already have a creed stating what the belief of the early church was, that Jesus died in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day, which is also in line with the scriptures. And then there's a list of names that we have here of people only five years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have Cephas, the 12 apostles. We have James. We also have those 500 that he appeared to, all, all those different peoples that he appeared to. And many of them are still alive, not all of them. Paul tells us that some of them have died. But many of those people are still alive. So if you're reading this letter from Paul, or if you hear about this letter from Paul that is being read, you can go ask Cephas, you can go ask one of the twelve, you can go ask James, you can go ask these people, hey, did this really happen? Is this really the way that it is? Is this really what you experienced? So if you're writing this, this is our belief that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, but then he rose again. And people are still alive who experienced that. There's just not enough time for myth or legend to develop within that. It's just not possible. This means that the belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus isn't a mythological belief, or it's not a legend that developed within the scriptures 40 years after Jesus' resurrection. What it means is that within two to five years after the resurrection, a creed had already been established to tell of the resurrection of Jesus, to tell that, that he was dead, but he is now alive. 
legendary tales just do not develop that quickly. There are also several other reasons that we have for believing in the reliability of the Bible, and I'm sure that we'll get to those and we'll cover those in other episodes. But for now, uh, if you'd like more information about the reliability of the Bible, being an accurate account, you can read Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, or another great resource you can read is a book called Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. Those are a couple of great resources to know more about the reliability of the Bible and why it's reasonable to have faith in Jesus. Why it's reasonable to look at the scriptures that are foundation of faith and why it's reasonable to conclude that the scriptures are true and accurate and that we can have a reason for believing in Jesus. So I encourage you to check out some of those resources. Also, I'm certain that we'll get to some of those other reasons why we can trust the scriptures uh, in later episodes. So uh, that's something to look forward to. To close this brief discussion, though, about Christian hope, because this is where we started. We started here with Christian hope, and, and then we got into the reliability of the scriptures. And why did I do that? Because I felt that it was important to, to talk about how reliable the scriptures are, because those scriptures, the word of God is the foundation of our faith, and it's a reliable foundation. And I hope that maybe this discussion has helped you to see that a little more clearly. So, uh, to close out this discussion on Christian hope, which is really more assurance than hope, remember that. Remember that Christian hope is more than just wishful thinking, but it's a certain, it's being certain in our expectation of who God is. But let's listen to Romans 5:13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and faith, so that you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And also in 1 Peter 1:13. Therefore, once you have your minds ready for action and are thinking clearly, place your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Leah views Obi-Wan as her only hope. In reality, Jesus is our only hope. Help me, Jesus. You're my only hope. Back to the movie, and there's more to the recording, but R2 says that he's the property of Obi-Wan Kenobi who lives around where Luke lives. And then Luke wonders, is Obi-Wan Kenobi related to Ben Kenobi, who lives somewhere near where Luke lives? So Luke talks to his aunt and uncle about it, and his uncle tells him that Obi-Wan died around the same time that Luke's father died. And then we see that Luke wants to leave the farm. He wants to apply to the academy. Although what academy it is, we're never told, but nonetheless, he wants to apply to the academy. But his uncle wants him to stay around and help on the farm for another year. Luke, in frustration, leaves the dinner table. And then his Aunt Brew says, Owen, he can't stay here forever. Most of his friends are gone. It means so much to him. And later on in this conversation, she continues, Luke's just not a farmer, Owen. He has too much of his father in him. And Uncle Owen replies, that's what I'm afraid of. Now, for those of us who know the story, and hopefully that's most of us, because this is another huge spoiler, but Darth Vader is Luke's father. Dun, dun, dun. And, and Owen knows this. Owen knows that Darth Vader is Luke's father, that Anakin Skywalker has made decisions that have led him to be Darth Vader, the evil Sith Lord. And Owen is worried that there's too much of Anakin in Luke. He is worried that there's too much potential to turn to the dark side. Well, that's something that's not only in Luke, 
but it's also in all of us. We have within us a sinful nature that is something known as original sin. The doctrine or belief of original sin states that there's a tendency to sin that is innate within all human beings that's inherited from Adam as a consequence of the fall. The fall, of course, is when Adam and Eve eat from the tree that God told them not to eat from in the Garden of Eden. And because of that, sin enters the world and we live in a world that is no longer intended the way that it was supposed to be. But we live in a world that's different. We live in a fallen world. It's no longer how it was intended to be. I once heard this analogy, and I think it's a great one. I can't remember where I heard it from. But I once heard it kind of uh, explained this way about the fall and creation and, and this analogy that's here for it. And who's ultimately responsible for sin entering the world and us having the sinful nature within us. And the analogy goes that if you were to go to the museum that the Mona Lisa is in, I don't know which museum that is, I'm not sure, maybe you do. But if you were to go to look at the, the Mona Lisa, if you were to go to look at this famous, famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci, if you were to go there and all of a sudden you went there to look at it and you were expecting to see the Mona Lisa, but you, you walk in and you see the Mona Lisa, but instead of just the Mona Lisa, you see the Mona Lisa with a big old mustache painted on her. This big old, one of those big old curly ones, a big thick mustache painted right on the Mona Lisa. If you were to go in there and look at that and say, what was Leonardo da Vinci thinking? How could he dare put a mustache on the Mona Lisa? That, was, that would have been such a great painting without that mustache. I can't believe that he would go in there and that he would ruin a beautiful painting in this way by, by putting that big old mustache on her. Now, that wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be fair to go in and blame Leonardo da Vinci for a mustache being on the Mona Lisa. Because we know that when da Vinci painted the, the Mona Lisa, he didn't paint it with the intention of there being a mustache on there. He didn't paint it that way. That, that was not his original tension, intention. That was not his original piece of artwork. So we couldn't blame the original artist for the mustache being on the Mona Lisa. Instead, we'd have to look and say, who did that later on? It wouldn't be da Vinci's fault. It would be somebody later on that has drawn this mustache on the Mona Lisa. And why would they do, do that to ruin such a beautiful piece of art? And the analogy there, of course, when we look at a fallen world, when we look at a world that has darkness in it, that has sin, that has evil, that has things that are not the way they should be, when we look at that, we can't look at it and say, God, what were you thinking making the earth this way? Because that's not God's original intention. A mustache has been drawn on the Mona Lisa that is creation, if you will. And we can't blame it on the original artist. Because the original artist, God, did not put it there. It wasn't his intention for it to be there. But through human action and decision, the world has fallen. There is sin, there is darkness, there is evil. And there's no one to blame but ourselves. So I really like this idea of the mustache on the Mona Lisa relating to creation and relating to the fall. I can't remember where I heard that example. I thought that I knew where I heard it, so I went and looked it up in preparation for this, but it wasn't there. So I don't know where it came from, but that's not my original idea, but I really like it. So if you know where that came from, or if you've heard that before, uh, let me know. I'd like to give credit where credit is due, but I think that's a great analogy for looking at the fall. It's not the original artist's fault because he didn't put it there. Uh, sin in the world is not God's fault because he didn't put it there. It came into sin, sin has come into the world, and we live in a fallen world through the result of human action, not through what God has done. And part of that 
original sin, part of that fall, uh, means that we are all born as humans with a sinful nature within us. We are all born in sin with a fallen nature. Romans 5.12 says, Just as through one human being sin came into the world, and death came through sin. So that death has come to everyone since everyone has sinned. Sin came into the world through one person, and that sin nature that is now with every human has been passed down from Adam to all of us. Each and every one of us, everyone listening here, has the capacity to sin within you, myself included. We all have the capacity to sin within us. Our natural desires that are good in and of themselves become potential areas of temptation and sin. We have a desire within us to enjoy things, and that's okay. That's a good thing. God enjoys things. There's nothing wrong with enjoying things, but within us that desire to enjoy things can become the lust of the flesh. The desire to obtain things, nothing wrong in and of itself, to, to want to have some things, to want to be able to uh, to, to have and enjoy things, to obtain things, but but that a desire to obtain things can become the lust of the eyes, where we're no longer content with what we have and, and what we've obtained, but we want what other people have, what they've obtained, and we start to covet what our neighbor has. The desire to do things, nothing wrong with that. We have a desire to do things. We have goals. We have wants. We have wishes. We have desires to do things in life. There's nothing wrong with that, but the desire to do things can become the pride of life, where we become defined by those things that we do, and we become proud of who we've become or what we've done, and we're led astray. Within all humans, there's the potential to follow God, but there's also the potential to not follow God, the potential to remain true to God's word or to not, the potential to do good or to do evil. We all have that potential within us, and we all have a sin nature within us because it was inherited from our parents. Here in Star Wars, Luke has too much of his father in him, and that makes him susceptible to the dark side, or at least Uncle Owen seems to believe so. But in reality, we all have too much of our parents in us in that same regard as being human, which means that we're born with a sinful nature and that sinful nature can also cause us to want to join the dark side. That sinful nature within us can cause us to be seduced by the dark side. And we are in need of a Savior to set us free from the sinful nature. We need a Savior that's going to give us a new nature. And that's what Jesus does for us. He allows us to be born again, to have the sinful nature put to death and a new righteous nature to dwell within us. Through Jesus, we can be set free from sin. We can be set free from that sinful nature, and we can become people who love God and love other people with our entire heart, mind, and soul. Help me, Jesus. You're my only hope. Back to the movie. When Luke returns to clean the droid, C-3PO tells him that R2 has left to find Obi-Wan Kenobi. The next morning, Luke and C-3PO go out to find R2, they find him, but they're attacked by the sand people, and Luke is knocked unconscious. However, Obi-Wan comes and scares away the sand people. When Luke wakes up, R2 and Obi-Wan are there, and Luke asks who he believes to be Ben Kenobi, who if he knows who Obi-Wan Kenobi is. And Ben says, I haven't gone by that name in a long time. But in fact, Ben Kenobi is Obi-Wan Kenobi. So then Obi-Wan and Luke discuss his father and the Clone Wars, and then Obi-Wan gives 
Luke, his dad's old lightsaber. And for the first time on screen, we see the blue glowing laser sword, and it is awesome. When he lights that up and it glows and you just see that, it's so great. I think that the lightsaber is probably my favorite weapon in all of science fiction. Uh, if I could have a lightsaber in real life, that would be amazing, incredibly dangerous. I'd probably hurt myself, but it would still be so cool. I think that they are great. That glowing laser sword that is the lightsaber. I love it. Anyway, Obi-Wan tells Luke that the lightsaber is an elegant weapon. For a more civilized time, for over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the Old Republic, before the Dark Times, before the Empire. Luke asks how his father died, and Obi-Wan tells him that a young Jedi who had turned to the dark side killed his father. His name is Darth Vader. But as we all know, Darth Vader is really Luke's father. Again, don't be mad. Spoiler alerts were given. Uh... That's one of the biggest things in, in the Star Wars universe that you don't want spoiled for you if you don't know, but I think we move past that. Darth Vader is Luke's father. And then Obi-Wan tells Luke, Vader was seduced by the dark side of the Force. And here we have even more imagery. We've already seen some of this, but this is where we really see this imagery of light and darkness in the Star Wars universe, where it really comes to let us know what this light and darkness is about. The dark side, of course, being evil, and the light side being good. Now, this is a very biblical theme, as God and goodness are often referred to as light in the Bible, and this world, or sin, or evil, is often referred to as darkness. For example, in 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-nine, we read this, You are my lamp, Lord. The Lord illuminates my darkness. Psalm 18:28 You are the one who lights my lamp the Lord my God illuminates my darkness Luke 11:35 Therefore see to it that the light in you is not darkness Isaiah 5:20 Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter Then 1 John 1:5 God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. Ephesians 5.8 You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so live your life as children of light. John 3.19 This is the basis for judgment. The light came into the world, and people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions are evil. John 8.12 Jesus spoke to the people, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then John 12.46 Here Jesus says, I have come as a light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me won't live in darkness. Now that was a lot of verses, but it's actually only a few of the many references to the images of light and darkness in the Bible. And we see that, and it's a beautiful image and analogy that, ex, that that goes out and is not just limited. It's not. It's an analogy that expands through all of time and space. That that two thousand plus years ago, Jesus or the other biblical authors, uh, well, Jesus can talk about light and darkness, or or biblical authors can can mention light and darkness. And today, we can still understand what that is. We can still understand that imagery today, which is just amazing that the way that the scriptures were written, that even though people 2,000 years ago understood them, people today can understand them. This analogy just goes beyond 
time and space and location. But those are just a few of the many references to the images of light and dark in the Bible. Evil is real. The dark side is real. There are some worldviews out there that argue that evil is not real, that there is no moral right or wrong, that, that it doesn't really matter, that, that nothing's right, nothing's wrong, nothing's good, nothing's evil. I think, personally, I think it's very hard to live in this world and deny the existence of evil. There are countless acts of evil that happen every day. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around a worldview that denies the existence of evil. Just go on the news or scroll through social media and you'll see things that happen that everyone knows shouldn't happen. You'll see things that happen that, that we know within us are not the way that things ought to be. There are things that are wrong that hurt people physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually every day. And we look at this and we say that evil, that, that there must be something wrong here. Evil is real. The dark side, sin is real. And we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned, and at times we are all tempted by the dark side. Sometimes sin looks good and feels good, but the goodness of sin is not really goodness. It's a pseudo-goodness. It only has the appearance of goodness, even though it's not. But that even that pseudo-goodness does not last long. It doesn't bring fulfillment. It is fleeting, and it always lets you down. And it never brings that meaning or purpose to your life that it so often promises that it will. But for some reason, that dark side can be seductive. The dark side tries to seduce us all. And sometimes, for some reason, we just give in. We just give in. However, just because we're tempted by sin does not mean that we have to give in. It does not mean that we have to give in. I know some people sometimes think that I've, I've been tempted and I should be to the point in my relationship with Jesus where I'm not tempted and just even thinking about these things makes me a terrible person or a bad Christian. But no, we all face temptation. That's not the problem. The, the problem is when we give in to that temptation. But we all face that. However, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in His power, sin can be resisted. In Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Jesus has been out there and he's been fasting for 40 days. And Satan comes to him and, and tempts him to turn a stone into bread. If you really are the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. But Jesus resists his temptation by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. People won't live only by bread, but by every word spoken of God. Then Satan tempts Jesus to throw himself off of the highest point of the temple. Throw yourself off and God will save you. Go ahead and let God save you. Go ahead and try it. But Jesus again resists by, by quoting scripture. And then finally, Satan takes Jesus to a high mountain and offers Jesus all the kingdoms. All these kingdoms that you can see, they can be yours, Jesus. If you'll just bow down and worship me is what the devil says. But Jesus again resists by quoting, by quoting scripture. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and worship him only. So what we see here is that knowing the scriptures can help you to resist temptation. When Jesus is tempted by the devil, what does he do? He quotes scripture. So if you want to be able to resist sin, if you want to be able to not give in to the seduction of the dark side, read your Bible. Spend time in it. 
get to know it, get to memorize the scriptures and, and what they say and and be familiar and, and, and hide those, treasure those things in your heart. Jesus is tempted, but he does not give in. We're all tempted, Jesus included, but just merely being tempted isn't the problem. That doesn't make you a bad person or a bad Christian. It makes you human because we all face that. But here's the good news. As we've seen with Jesus, you don't have to give in. You don't have to give in to temptation. It, it is possible to be able to resist. Now, we have all sinned at some point. We've already said that. All sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But just because we sinned in the past doesn't mean that it should be an excuse for why we can sin in the future. That doesn't work that way. We shouldn't try to make grace increase by making our sin increase. No, of course not. But instead, we should take the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We should know the scriptures. We should resist temptation. If there's, there's another thing you can do to be able to resist temptation as well. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, before he is arrested and put on trial and crucified, he goes there in the garden with his disciples. And he tells them in Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If you want to be able to resist sin, pray. Pray that you don't fall into temptation. Pray that you will not be led in temptation. Pray that you won't fall into that, that you'll be able to resist when tempting moments come. But also you need to be careful what situations you put yourself in. If you know that you are going to be with certain people, or if you know you're going to be in certain places, that if you go to these people, or if you go to these places that you're going to sin, that it's just going to be more likely that you're going to give in to temptation, then don't go with those people. And don't go to those places. Remove yourself from especially tempting situations if you find yourself in them. Or just don't put yourself in those tempting situations in the first place if you know that they're going to be tempting for you. Avoid them. Just don't go. Now, obviously, not all tempting situations can be avoided. I'm aware of that. But some can. And they should be if that's possible. They should be able to be avoided if at all, if possible, so that you don't put yourself in that situation. Also, when we look at this discussion of how to resist the seduction of the dark side, I think it's useful to look at Hebrews 4, 14 through 15, where we read this. Also, let's hold on to the confession, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, who is Jesus, God's son. Because we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but instead one who was tempted in every way that we are, except without sin. Jesus has been tempted in every way that we are, yet he did not sin. He did not give in. This should give us hope that if Jesus is dwelling within our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we too, by relying on God, can resist the seduction of the dark side. Of course, this takes time. Uh, this isn't usually something that happens overnight, but the longer we are in relationship with Jesus, the less and less we should sin as we seek that work of grace in our lives that is known as entire sanctification. Now, I come from a Wesleyan understanding of theology. And my, that, that is where I am. That's my understanding of, of theology, and that is a, a holiness background that I come from believing that this idea of entire sanctification is possible in this life, that it's possible to be sanctified and to be like God. 
Now, this idea of entire sanctification may scare some people, may throw some people off. What, what does this mean, and, and can that really happen? Well, let me tell you this. Entire sanctification can be summed up in what Jesus says to those who are listening to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 48. Here's what we say. Here's what we hear Jesus, we hear Jesus say. Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so you also must be complete in showing love to everyone. Now, some of your translations from Matthew 5, 48 probably say, therefore, just as your heavenly Father is perfect, so also you must be perfect. But what does being perfect actually mean? What is that getting at? And the idea of perfection here is being filled with the love of God, having the love of God come in and fill your life so that you are free to love God and to love others completely and wholly. Entire sanctification is being filled with the love of God in a supernatural way that you love God and you love all people everywhere with your entire soul, mind, and strength. If you love God and love others with all that you are and with all that you have, that desire for willful, intentional sin is just not there as it once was. Entire sanctification just means that you are free. You are free to love God fully and completely and free to love neighbor fully and completely, and have been set free from the bondage of sin. Now, this is just a surface-level examination of entire sanctification, and it's something that I'm sure we'll discuss later on as I come from a holiness background, but I believe it's possible, and what, what it really is is seeking God with your whole heart and seeking to be filled with His love so that you can love God and love others completely, that you are free to do both of those. We are also set free from the bondage and from the chains of sin. And I believe that's possible to do in this life, not through anything that you can do to earn that, not through anything that you can do to make that happen, but through a work of grace that God does in your life. Now, of course, there are things that you can do to help God along the way. I believe that we, God gives us choice and decisions to make. So if you want this work of entire sanctification, you can sit here and you can just say, God, just give it to me and hope that it happens. And it probably won't if that's all you're going to do is just sit here and say, God, give me this. I want it. And you just sit here. But but if you go know your scriptures, if you're praying, if you're not putting yourself in tempting situations, or if you're removing yourself when you feel tempted to be able to resist, if you are doing these things and and, and doing things like spiritual disciplines and reading your scriptures and praying and fasting and all those other different things, if you are doing those things and seeking God with your whole heart, you're aligning yourself up. You're putting yourself in the pathway of God's grace where that entire sanctification is going to be much easier to come and flow in your life. That it's a two-way street, that God does work in our lives, but we also need to make sure that we are doing things in our life to put ourselves in the stream of God's grace. And we can do that through knowing our scriptures, through praying, through actively resisting temptation and sin, and through practicing spiritual disciplines. So that's just a very surface level of examination of entire sanctification, and I believe that it is possible, and I believe that it is possible for you. If you have any questions about that or what that means, feel free to reach out to me. You should know the ways to do that now. But if you want to know more about this, I will recommend one book by Keith Drury called Holiness for Ordinary People. Go and check that out if you want to see how entire sanctification is possible, not 
only just for this, the saints that we look at or these mega Christians or these people who are super close to God. No, entire sanctification is for ordinary people like you and like me. And that can happen. So look up Keith Jury's book, Holiness for Ordinary People, if you want to know more about this idea of entire sanctification, or you can reach out to me. But be encouraged by this. Jesus knows and understands your temptation. And through the power and dwelling of the Holy Spirit, sin can be resisted. You do not have to give in to the seduction of the dark side. Resistance is not futile. And if you just got that reference, this is truly and unquestionably the podcast for you as we just had a Star Trek, Star Wars crossover with that line. Resistance is not futile. That's a good one if you're a sci-fi fan. Back to the movie, and Luke asks us, excuse me, Luke asks about the Force, and Obi-Wan tells him, well, the Force is what gives a Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. Now, someone making connections to theological ideas in fiction have argued that the Force within Star Wars is the Holy Spirit. In reviewing the movies, A Christian Response to Contemporary Film, authors Peter Fraser and Vernon Edwin Neal write this about Star Wars. In Star Wars, Luke Skywalker has been said to resemble either David or Christ, preparing for his position as king. The Force is the power of the Holy Spirit. Darth Vader is the fallen angel Lucifer. And the battles are for the souls of mankind. I was actually rather disappointed when I read that. In episode four, as we will see, and I've already discussed a little bit, Obi-Wan is the one who is the Christ figure, not Luke. And I don't see Vader as the fallen angel Lucifer, especially when we look at Vader's complete story arc and see the redemption that he has at the end. I don't think that fits. And I also don't see the force as the power of the Holy Spirit. There's many, many problems within there. The first one that just comes right off to mind is said that the force is something created by living beings. The force is something created by living beings. Let me tell you, folks, the Holy Spirit does not get his power. He is not created from living beings. The Holy Spirit is not dependent upon anything for his survival or power. The Holy Spirit is fully God, pre-existent before creation, and is not dependent upon anyone for his being or for his power. So right off the bat, when we see this idea of the force, it makes a poor analogy for the Holy Spirit because we don't create the Holy Spirit. No, that's not what happens. That's not the way that it works. The Holy Spirit is the one who's involved in creation. He is not something that has been created. Brian P. Stone attempts to explain the relationship between the Force and the Holy Spirit in his book, Faith and Film, Theological Themes at the Cinema. He writes this, Though the Force of Star Wars resembles elements of Zen philosophy and ancient Chinese Taoism, it also has characteristics that make it an interesting dialogue partner for reflecting on the Christian affirmation, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. In this book, Stone, he goes through the Apostles' Creed and relates it to, he relates the phrases to the Apostles' Creed to different movies. And it's a really cool book. I encourage you to check it out if you're interested in the intersection of film and theology. And I appreciate what he's attempting to do, but I still don't like the Holy Spirit as being represented by the Force. Some other reasons I don't like that are not just that what creates the Force, but 
also that the the Holy Spirit is not some energy field or he's not some kind of force. That's one of the problems there. So one of the problems that we have with the beliefs about the Holy Spirit is that oftentimes the Holy Spirit is depersonalized or he is just reduced to a way in which God works and he is not distinguished as a member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity, but sometimes we depersonalize him. The Holy Spirit is not a force or energy, but is a person. Now, what I mean by person is not that the Holy Spirit is a human person like you or me. Rather, what is meant by that is that the Holy Spirit has personhood. The Holy Spirit has a name, Holy Spirit. He actually has many names, if you read through the scriptures, many titles. The Holy Spirit is not referred to as a thing or as an it. The Holy Spirit acts as a person would act. And the Holy Spirit, like a person, could be resisted or can be avoided or can be answered. The Holy Spirit can also be lied to, the scriptures tell us, and you can only lie to something that has personhood. You cannot lie to a force like gravity. Gravity doesn't have personhood. How can I tell gravity a lie? There is no agency. There is no personhood for gravity to understand that or even to hear me or to know what I'm talking about. You can't lie to a force. You can lie to a person. The Holy Spirit also has intelligence and will and feeling and purpose, the ability to communicate. All those things are characteristics of personhood. The Holy Spirit is a unique individual who has individual, unique personhood. So when we look at that, we can see there's a few problems with the Holy Spirit being like the force because we do not create the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not a force or is not some kind of field or, or energy but as a person. Another problem is that the force gives a Jedi his power. Isn't that also what gives a Sith his power? There's a light side and a dark side of the force, correct? So, so the Jedi get their power from the light side of the force and the Sith get their power, I assume, from the dark side of the force. Well, in the Holy Spirit, there is no dark side. For the Holy Spirit is, well, Holy. There's no dark or sinful side to the Holy Spirit. Obi-Wan also says this about the force, that it surrounds us and penetrates us. Now, the Holy Spirit does surround us. We would say that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent everywhere at once, but the Holy Spirit only dwells within us if we allow him to. God has offered that invitation to allow the Holy Spirit to come into our lives but and come into our hearts, but... The Holy Spirit only comes in if we accept that invitation. The Holy Spirit only comes into our hearts if we open the doors for him. He doesn't come and kick down the doors to our hearts so we can get in, even if we don't want him to. That, that's not the way it works. He extends an invitation, and if we open those doors, he comes in. And if we do not, he doesn't. So personally, I'm not a huge fan of the analogy of the force being like the Holy Spirit. I don't think it fits with it very much, and it just doesn't work for me. And I think it truly stems some from misunderstandings of who the Holy Spirit is and how the Holy Spirit works and his being a member of the Trinity. And we need to be careful to not depersonalize who the Holy Spirit is. He is a person, he's a unique individual, a member of the Trinity, along with the Father and the Son. Back to the movie, and R2 plays the entire message of Leia for Obi-Wan. And basically, Leia wants Obi-Wan to get R2-D2 to Alderaan, to her father, because 
R2 has information in his memory unit that's vital to the survival of the rebellion. And Obi-Wan tells Luke that he must learn the ways of the Force if he's going to come with him to Alderaan. But Luke says he can't leave. Obi-Wan says he needs Luke's help, and so does Leia. But Luke says that he can't get involved. I, th- I just can't get involved. And he hates the Empire. He, do- he doesn't like the evil Empire, but he has responsibilities at home. Here, Luke gives a reason, or some might say an excuse, for why he can't go with Obi-Wan. And it's really interesting here, if Obi-Wan is a Christ figure, which he is, we've already discussed that a little bit, but we'll discuss it some more. So if Obi-Wan is a Christ figure, it's interesting that Luke is giving a reason or making excuses for why he can't follow him. Well, let's talk about life. Um, let's talk about art imitating life a little bit, huh? How often do we make excuses or give reasons for why we can't follow God, for why we can't follow what Jesus is calling us to do? We make excuses that involve time or money or resources or talents or or doubts or, or not having the right ability or not having the right know-how or the right knowledge. We let our fears or worries get in our way and we have million excu- a million excuses, a million and one excuses for why we don't follow God. Well, for you, what is something that God has called you to do that you have reasons and excuses for not doing. Honestly, at one point for me, it was this podcast. I didn't have the time. I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't have the equipment. I didn't have the know-how. I didn't know how to make the sound right. I still maybe don't. I I didn't know all these different things and how to do this or, or where to go or how to advertise or how to put my podcast out here. I didn't really have much confidence that I could do this. But God worked on me and through several, several situations impressed upon me that this needed to be started, and here we are. But honestly, I should have done this sooner. I had the idea for this podcast pre-pandemic, and I had been working on it some then, and then things happened, and and I just had a million excuses for why I wasn't going to get it done. But then, finally, God impressed upon me through a number of different things that it was time, that it was past time, that I needed to start working on this. So is there anything you know that you're supposed to be doing, or maybe that God has called you to do, but you've been making excuses about. I challenge you to set those excuses aside and follow what God is calling you to do. I need to be careful here. This is going to turn into a sermon, but actually I'm okay with that. If you feel like God is impressing something upon your heart that you need to do or is calling you to do something, then go and talk with your Christian friends or your pastor about that and and try to discern, is this really from God? Is this really something that God would want me to do? And walk through that and work through that with people who are closest to you. They can give you affirmation or they can give you confirmation one way or another, whatever it may be. But if you know that God is calling you to do something, whether that's entering into a ministry or starting a podcast or going to talk to a coworker or or sending a card to a family member. If God is calling you to do these things, to reach out to people, whatever it may be, set aside the excuses and go and do it. So what are those things that you know you should have done a while ago, but you've just made excuses to not do them? I challenge you now, set those excuses aside and be faithful to what God has laid upon your heart to go and do that. Now Luke says, uh, back to the movie, Luke says that he will take Obi-Wan to where he can get a transport to Alderaan. But that's all. And then Obi-Wan responds, 
You must do what you feel is right, of course. Let's pause here again. For the Christian, we are not concerned about doing what we feel is right. After all, as a fallen human, what I feel is right might not be right. It may not be correct. It may not be God's way. So we are not so much interested in doing what we feel is right, but we're interested in doing what God says is right. God's way may not be our way. God's path may not be our path. So we want to do what God says is right. We want to be on God's path, not just doing what we feel is right, not just doing what we feel is okay, not just following after our feelings. That's not what we're interested here. Our feelings can lead us astray. Now, sometimes our feelings can't, and, and we have gut feelings and intuition and all those kinds of things that can be follow, that, that, that can be from God and can be followed. But sometimes I'm just going to do what feels good to me. No, that's not what a Christian should be concerned about. Instead, we should be concerned about following God's way, even if it's the hard way, even if it's the way that doesn't feel like the way I want to go because there's some other things that I want to do because I like doing what I want to do when I want to do it, how I want to do it. We still, even in the light of all of that, should be concerned with not doing what I feel like I should do, but following God's course. God's course is the right course. We cut to the Death Star and we learn that the Imperial Senate has been dissolved by the Emperor and regional governors have direct control over their territory. And then Tarkin says this, Fear will keep the local systems in line. Fear of this battle station. Again, we need to pause to look at the li this line here and look at fear. To look at fear, I want to turn to a line from a book by Philip K. Dick. As you may know, Philip K. Dick is one of my two favorite sci-fi authors, along with Clifford D. Samak. But here, Philip K. Dick wrote a book called Flow My Tears, the Policeman Said. A bit of a strange title. It comes from a poem within the book. Uh, I, I like Philip K. Dick and, and his writings, and, and this is a good one here. But the, the book is Flow My Tears, the Policeman Said. And the line that I want to look at from this book is one of my favorite lines anywhere in fiction. Anywhere in fiction, this is one of my favorite lines. This is one of my favorite quotes of all time, actually, looking at anything. And here's what the quote says from the book, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said by Philip K. Dick. Fear can make you do more wrong than hate or jealousy. If you're afraid, you don't commit yourself to life completely. Fear makes you always, always hold something back. Let me read that again. Fear can make you do more wrong than hate or jealousy. If you're afraid, you don't commit yourself to life completely. Fear makes you always, always hold something back. I love that line because it's so true. Fear always makes us hold something back. Fear is never a good motivator to stay in or be in a relationship with someone. Here in Star Wars, Tarkin believes that through fear they can keep the local systems in line, that, that through fear people will be so afraid of the Death Star, a battle station that can destroy a planet in just seconds. They're going to be so afraid of this that they are going to bow down in fear and be loyal to the Empire. But fear doesn't make people loyal. Fear isn't a good motivator to keep people in line because when people fear, they always, always hold something back. This is true in life and, and true of the way that, that we live in relationships that we have with other people. It's also true of our relationship with God. 
that fear is not a good motivator to be in and stay in a relationship with God. God doesn't want us to be afraid of him in the sense that we have an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that God is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat, which is the Google machine definition of fear. Google tells us that fear is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. God doesn't want us to have that fear. God doesn't want us to have this unpleasant emotion that he's going to cause us pain when we think of him. So when we hear this phrase, sometimes you've heard the phrase, fear the Lord. It's not that we're to be afraid or scared of the Lord in this definition here that's listed on Google, as much as it is that we are to regard God with reverence and awe, that we are to respect God and who he is and the power and position that he holds, knowing that God is the one with the power and the control, knowing that God is God and that I am not, and being in awe and reverence of who he is giving him the respect and the honor and the glory that he deserves. That that is what to fear the Lord means, not to be scared of him, that we're going to have this unpleasant emotion because we believe that God is likely to cause pain or is dangerous for us or is a threat. No, no, that kind of, that kind of fear does not produce good relationships. It's not a good motivator to get in a relationship and it's not a good motivator to stay in a relationship. Instead, love is a much better motivator to be in and maintain a relationship with someone. In fact, love should drive out fear. In 1 John 4, 16 through 18, we read this. God is love, and those who remain in love remain in God, and God remains in them. This is how love has been perfected in us, so that we can have confidence on, ju- confidence on judgment day because we are exactly the same as God in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear expects punishment. The person who is afraid has not been made perfect in love. God doesn't want you to be afraid of him. He wants you to be made perfect in love. Loving God and loving others completely. Not being afraid of punishment, but being in relationship with God and being a part of his family and being co-heirs with Christ as a child of God accepted into that family. So the empire here is trying to use fear to keep people loyal, but it's a poor plan and it's not going to work because fear doesn't produce true loyalty. Love can do that, but fear does not. Back to the movie and there's concern over the plans that R2-D2 has and how the rebels might find a weakness and exploit it. But Darth Vader says the plans will soon be back in their hands. And then we have this conversation. There's a man whose name is uh, Mahdi, and Mahdi says this, Any attack made by the rebels against this station will be a useless gesture. No matter what technical data they've obtained, this station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. And Darth Vader responds, Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the Force. And Mahdi replies, don't try to frighten us with your sorcerer's ways, Lord Vader. Your sad devotion to that ancient religion has not helped you conjure up the stolen data tapes or given you clairvoyance enough to find the rebels hidden for... And then here in the script we read, suddenly Mahdi chokes and starts to turn blue under Vader's spell. And then Vader says this very famous line, I find your lack of faith disturbing. And then Tarkin says, enough of this. 
Vader release him. And then Vader says, as you wish. It's an interesting conversation here about technology and power and the force and the power of evil and Vader. We also see how others feel about the way of the Jedi or the way of the Sith, the feel about the force. It's an ancient religion that doesn't seem to be much practical help, according to some. As we see Mahdi, who feels this way, he has a misunderstanding about the force. The force is more powerful than he thinks or than he realizes. Well, some today have a misunderstanding about Christianity. It's not an ancient religion of no practical help. No, God is and remains alive and active. He is making life complete and fulfilled for those who are following him. There are some practical ways that life becomes better. Everyday life becomes better when we follow God. We have joy and peace and contentment and hope. We, we are happier when we are following God. There are some real practical ways to that that God makes our life better because Christianity is not an ancient religion with no practical purpose for today. No, it's a, uh, uh, the religion of the living God of the universe who is still alive and still interacting with creation and still bringing wholeness and completeness and taking people who are broken and putting them back together and bringing the fulfillment to their lives. And there is actual things that our life becomes better because we are more content, because we are more complete, because we are more whole and we are following God. So there, the Christianity is not an ancient religion that's of no value today. It is the, the following the living God of the universe and, and, and is so relevant for today. If you want to have wholeness, if you want to be complete, if you want to be restored, if you want to be fulfilled, come to God. You can experience those things. Back to the movie, and Tarkin assures the council that is gathered that Vader will have the plans by the time the battle station is operational, and the rebellion will be crushed with one swift stroke. Then we cut back to Tatooine, and the Jawa's transport has been destroyed, and Obi-Wan ironically and hilariously states that the accuracy of the blaster marks shows that it couldn't have been the sand people, but it must have been the stormtroopers. That's right. Obi-Wan talks about the accuracy of the stormtroopers. We've already seen them be very accurate for the first time on screen in history, and I think the only time, but we've also seen them be very inaccurate as well. And it's kind of funny here as we know the inaccuracy of the stormtroopers throughout the Star Wars franchise. They never seem to hit what they're aiming at, but yet Obi-Wan talks about their accuracy and how impressive it is, even though it could not be any less impressive. They never hit anything. Then Luke worries that the stormtroopers might have gone to his aunt and uncle's to look for the droids, and when he arrives home, everything is burning, and he finds his aunt and uncle are dead. Back on the Death Star, Invader interrogates Leah, Princess Leia, and we see a droid with a syringe flying around Leia, implying that she's going to be given some kind of truth serum, so she has to tell Vader whatever it is that he wants to know, and that's just such a creepy and terrifying scene, this droid flying around with this needle out flying towards her. It's, it's creepy. I'm back to Tatooine. Luke tells Obi-Wan he will go with him to Alderaan. He wants to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi, like his father. They go to Moss Eisley Spaceport, uh, about which Obi-Wan says, you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be careful. They run into stormtroopers in the first thing in town, and Obi-Wan mind tricks them. These aren't the droids you're looking for with a little hand wave, and then 
they get through and the stormtroopers, yes, you're right. These aren't the droids we're looking for. Let them through. Luke says he doesn't understand how they got past the stormtroopers, but Obi-Wan replies, the force can have a strong influence on the weak-minded. Then they enter Moss Eisley Cantina. I feel like the cantina stuck out to me as a child, and I'm not sure why. I I remember this, watching it as a child. Maybe it's because of the collection of aliens, or maybe it's just seeing a lightsaber in action for the first time. I don't know. This really sucks out to me as something that I remember. I also had some action figures of these aliens that were here, so playing with those probably uh, fits into that somehow. But I really, when I see the cantina, it just seems to take me back to watching this as, as a child. Then the bartender, or the owner of the cantina, I assume he's probably the owner, points to C-3PO and tells Luke that we don't serve their kind here. He says that the droids will have to wait outside. They don't want them in here. Now let's pause here as we see something that is no stranger to 2021, or really something that is no stranger to any time throughout history, discrimination. Of course, the question could be asked if C-3PO counts as a living, sentient being who has personhood or not since he's a machine. We'll save that discussion for another episode. We'll get to Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the book that the movie Blade Runner is based off of, and we will have that discussion in depth. What does it make and a person and is a machine a person and person and all those kinds of things. We will explore that topic in depth then, I assure you. Does a machine have personhood or could it? But what's of interest to us right here is not so much that discussion with C-3PO, because we'll get to that in a later episode. Just in a di- it's the same idea, just with a different work. But what's of interest here is the bar owner. I presume he's the owner again, but he doesn't want a certain kind of being in their bar. They don't want any droids. They they don't want them there just because of how someone is or because of their appearance, because of the way that they look, or, or because, I don't know what it is, but it's infuriating to see that someone would be discriminated against because of their appearance. Again, this is nothing new to any time throughout history. The events over the past couple of years seem to put this in a new light, but we would be fooling ourselves if we think that this is a 2020 or 2021 problem. This has been a people problem for as long as sin has been on the earth because this is not just a people problem. This is a sin problem. Looking at this idea of fear of the other kind of a, the idea, which we'll get into that later on too in the next episode when we look at what we're going to look at next in the next episode. We'll get to that later on here. Uh, when we end here, I'll tell you where we're going next. But but we are going to see these ideas here that, that, that people get discriminated against just because of their appearance, because of the way they look. Something that's always been going on because that's a, a problem with sin, that we don't accept others, that we don't want others to become part of, of our group or part of our tribe, to use that kind of language. It's, but this is not how Jesus is, and it's not how Christians should be. As a matter of fact, the church, the universal church, is a church of all nations, tribes, and peoples. In Galatians 3, 25 through 29, we read this. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. You are all God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. All of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Now, if you belong to Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to the promise. Becoming a part of Jesus' family is offered to all, no matter where you come from, no matter where you've been, no matter how you look, 
no matter who your family is, no matter where you've been raised, none of those things. None of those things matter because you can become a part of God's family. You can become a part of the church. Now, once you join God's family, you can't just keep doing what you've been doing. You can't just keep living the same way that you've been living. There are expectations and there's a way of life that needs to be lived. But all are invited and can be accepted if you take that invitation. All can be accepted. See, see, we don't have to get everything figured out in our life and be doing what we're supposed to be doing before we can come to God. That's not the way that it works. We come to God as we are, and then we allow him to clean up our lives. We come to God as we are, and then we allow him to come in, and then we can start living according to his expectations and the way that he wants us to live. We don't do those things before we come to Christ. We don't get our lives figured out before we come to Christ because we can't figure our lives out apart from Christ. So if you can't figure it out, if you feel lost, if you feel lonely, if you feel estranged, come to Jesus. He can make you whole. He can give you a part of an, a family and can give you acceptance and fulfillment. So we don't need to fill, find, figure out all those things before we come to Jesus. We figure out all those things with Jesus after we have accepted that invitation to join his family. So the church universal, the, the universal church, the worldwide church, is not like this bar in Mos Eisley. The church invites you to join. And then once you've joined, you can work on how to live in right relationship with God and with others. You don't have to figure out how to live in right relationship with God and others before you join God's family. No, that's why you join the family, so that you can have God and other members of the family help you with that to give you guidance and direction and encouragement as we sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. Back to the movie, and Luke gets something to drink as Obi-Wan talks to Chewbacca. An alien comes up to Luke and says something that we can't understand, and then a friend of this alien tells Luke that this alien doesn't like him, and that he doesn't like him either. And then he throws Luke across the room and pulls a gun out, but before anything else can happen, Obi-Wan takes his lightsaber out and cuts his arm off. Just an awesome scene, seeing that lightsaber in action for the first time. And even though the Jedi, the only two Jedi remaining, have been in hiding for several years, the Katina is oddly silenced and okay with this. After a few seconds, they continue on as though nothing happened. There's a few seconds of silence, and then the music starts playing, and they continue on. You think that seeing a, a Jedi lightsaber in action for the first time in a very long time would have a bigger reaction than it gets, but... But I guess they're used to some crazy things here at the the Moss Eisley Katina. Uh, but it's great seeing that lightsaber in action for the first time. And then Luke and Obi-Wan meet Han Solo, the captain of the Millennium Falcon, for the first time. They are reaching an agreement, and Han tells them that they will leave as soon as they are ready. Then Han tries to leave the Katina, but he's stopped by Greedo, the bounty hunter. Han owes a lot of money to Jabba the Hutt. And Jabba the Hutt has put a contract out on his head, so Greedo works here for Jabba. Now, Greedo and Jabba, or Greedo and Han sit at a table, and Greedo has a gun pointed at Han, but then Han draws his gun and shoots first. Yes, that's right. Han shoots first. Here at Theology and Sci-Fi, I am firmly in the Han shot first camp. But that, of course, brings up the question, was it morally okay for Han Solo to shoot first? Is preemptive self-defense okay? Or even, is there even such a thing as preemptive self-defense? Han does have a gun pointed at him, and there is an exchange that happens between Greedo and Han, 
So after Han tells Greedo that he has Jabba the Hutt's money, this is the conversation that we see that they have. About the money, Greedo says, if you give it to me, I might forget I found you. But Han says, I don't have it with me. Tell Jabba, and Greedo interrupts. Jabba's through with you. He has no time for smugglers who drop their shipments at the first sign of an Imperial cruiser. And then Han says, even I get boarded sometimes. Do you think I had a choice? And then in the script we read, Han Solo slowly reaches for his gun under the table. Then Greedo says, you can tell that to Jabba. He may only take your ship. Han says, over my dead body. And then Greedo replies, that's the idea. I've been looking forward to killing you for a long time. And Han says, yes, I'll bet you have. Then we read this in the script. Suddenly the slimy alien disappears in a blinding flash of light. Han pulls his smoking gun from beneath the table as another as other patrons look on in bemused amazement. Han gets up, starts out of the cantina, flipping the bartender some coins as he leaves, and says, sorry about the mess. So Han does shoot first, but it seems that Greedo was threatening to kill him, and Greedo does have a gun pointed at him. So personally, in such a situation, if it were ever to come down to this unlikely, very unlikely situation in my own life, and I just had this conversation and knew that this guy had a gun pointed at me and knew that maybe only one of us would be leaving that place alive, I guess in that situation, putting myself in Han Solo's place, I, I too might shoot first. Maybe. I, I don't know, being in that situation. I do have a bit of a hard time arguing against Han defending himself. He certainly does seem to be in some kind of mortal danger, but... I understand also how people could have a problem with Han shooting first because there's only the, uh, I, I, I don't know, I, I can kind of understand both ways. But what do you think? Was it morally acceptable for Han Solo to shoot first? I'd love to hear from you and see what you think about this moral dilemma. I kind of go back and forth understanding why Han would do that, but I think I can also understand the argument that, well, Greedo's probably just going to take Han Solo to Jabba. He's probably not going to kill him there, so he's just trying to take him somewhere. So um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think I can understand what Han's doing, but I'm interested in what you think. Was it morally acceptable for Han to shoot first? What do you think about that moral dilemma? Back on the Death Star, Vader says that Leia's resistance to the mind probe, oh, that's a terrible, terrible phrase, the mind probe. Ugh, that's just cringy. The mind, her resistance to the mind probe is considerable, and there is maybe some time before they can get any information. The Death Star is almost fully operational, so Tarkin sets the course for Alderaan. Back on Tatooine, the stormtroopers continue to look for the droids, and as Luke and uh, Obi-Wan and the droids and, and Chewbacca and Han go to board the Millennium Falcon, stormtroopers arrive, and a shootout ensues, where we again just see how inaccurate the stormtroopers really are the falcon escapes but imperial cruisers are following then the falcon jumps to light speed and they get away back on the death star they're looking at alderaan when princess leia is brought to tarkin tarkin tells leia that she will be executed and then he demonstrates the power of the death star he blows up the planet alderaan even though leia tells him the location of the rebel base she she tells him it's on Dantooine. She's trying to save her home planet. She tells him what he wants to know, but Tarkin blows up the planet anyway. And then Tarkin tells Princess Leia that she is much too trusty. When Alderaan is destroyed, Obi-Wan feels a great disturbance in the Force, as though millions of voices cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. He feels as though something terrible has happened. Then we see Luke training 
uh, with a lightsaber, and Obi-Wan says, Remember, a Jedi can feel the Force flowing through him. And then Luke says, You mean it controls your actions? And Ben says, Partially, but it also obeys your commands. Well, here's another way that the Force is not like the Holy Spirit, or that the Holy Spirit is not like the Force. The Holy Spirit does not obey our commands. We don't get to tell the Holy Spirit what to do, when to do it, how to do it. That's not the way that it works. The whole, we, we don't control the Holy Spirit. Also, the Holy Spirit does not control our actions. God has made us to be beings with free will, making our own choices and making our own decisions. That, that the Holy Spirit does not control our actions because we have free will, and we do not get to control the Holy Spirit. He does not obey our command. So again, here we see some ways that the analogy of the force, the Holy Spirit, just does not fit. Um, and Luke here, uh, continuing on, Luke is trying to stop blaster shots from hitting him by deflecting them with his lightsaber, but he keeps getting hit. And then Hans says, hokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side, kid. And Luke says, you don't believe in the force, do you? And Han replies, kid, I've flown from one side of this galaxy to the other. I've seen a lot of strange stuff, but I've never seen anything to make me believe that there's one all-powerful force controlling everything. There's no mystical energy field that controls my destiny. It's all a lot of simple tricks and nonsense. Here we learn something else about the force. According to Han Solo's understanding of the force, it's an all-powerful force that controls everything. Here, the Force and God have something in common. God is all-powerful. But is God like the Force in controlling everything? I would argue that no, he's not. That God is not controlling everything. That God is active and working in the world, but he's working in a way in what is known as providence. Providence states that God cares for creation, is active in creation, yet has allowed people free will so that they make decisions that impact creation. That means that God is not controlling everything. God is active and caring for it, but God has allowed people free will so that we too, as people, can make decisions that impact creation. We can make decisions that impact the future. can make decisions that impact other people. That God is not the one controlling all of this, but, but God has allowed us to make decisions to impact and control some as well. This means that God is not in control of everything because he's allowed his creation to have some control. He's allowed his creation to have choice, to make our own decisions, and to make our own decisions even when they go against what God would want or desire. That's what providence states, that we have those ability to make decisions that impact creation for the better or even for the worse. Now, there are some other ways in which people would argue how God interacts with creation that would fit with this idea of God controlling everything like the force. We would call that determinism. Determinism states that God has meticulous control over what happens and what doesn't happen. That God determines almost every single thing that will happen. That would be known as determinism. That God is up there and that we really don't have any choice. We really don't have any control. That God is determining things even though we think we may have some free will. There's another way that God could interact with creation that has been said, and that would be called indeterminism. Now, indeterminism states that God has almost no control over the things that happen. The things were set in motion, and whatever happens, happens, and God is just sitting back 
and is watching and is just seeing what happens with this experiment that he has started with no control over it whatsoever. Another model for how God can interact with creation would be called deism. Deism states there is a God who created, he establishes natural laws, and then leaves. So it's kind of, um, sometimes the analogy along with this that I've heard before is that, you know, it's kind of like God winds up a watch and then, all right, I've done my part, now I'm done, and whatever happens, happens. So he, he, he winds up creation to work the way that it should and then just leaves and doesn't care, doesn't interact, doesn't pay much attention to what's going on. Dualism is another way that God can interact with creation, and dualism states that there is a good God and an evil God that are equal and competing for control. This may fit the understanding of the force with the good side of the force and the dark side of the force, but it's certainly not the way that things work in reality. Yes, there is the devil, and the devil is evil and does evil things, but the devil is not God, and the devil is not equal to God, and they are not competing for control. They are not fighting on even ground. There is only one God and three persons, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is not an evil God, so dualism doesn't work either. The best model for how God interacts with his creation, I believe, is not determinism or indeterminism or deism or dualism, but the best model, as I said, is this idea of providence, that God cares for his creation, is active in his creation, yes, allowed people free will so that we have decisions that impact creation. About the force, Han Solo also says, there's no mystical energy field that controls my destiny. I would agree with that. God is not a mystical energy field. And God actually gives you control over your own destiny, at least in terms of salvation. Will you accept God's offer of salvation or will you reject that? The choice is yours to make. You have free will to follow God or not. That choice is yours. Next in the movie, Obi-Wan puts a helmet on Luke and he can't see, but Obi-Wan tells him to feel the force. And Luke is then able to deflect the blaster bolts. Back on the Death Star and the scouts for the Empire have found the rebel base on Tatooine, but it's been abandoned for a long time. Leia didn't give up her people. And then Tarkin gives the order to terminate her immediately. The Millennium Falcon arrives at Alderaan. Well, at least arrives where Alderaan is supposed to be, but it's been blown away. They can't find it. It's just a meteor field now for the, the chunks of Alderaan floating out in space. And then they see a TIE fighter and think that it's flying towards the moon, but it's not. That's no moon. It's the Death Star. They try to turn around, but they're in their tractor beam and are taken aboard the Death Star. So the crew hides, and when the Falcon is searched, they find nothing. But Vader says he senses something, a presence he has not felt since. And then he just kind of trails off and walks away. And back in the Falcon, Han says that even if they could take off, he couldn't get past the tractor, tractor beam. So Obi-Wan says, leave that to me. Han and Luke manage to attack two stormtroopers, and they take their armor, and they take a command room where they uh, find where the tractor beam is. So the Obi-Wan leaves by himself, saying that I'll take that down so they can escape. Uh, R2-D2 plugs into the Death Star system and finds that Leia is aboard the Death Star and she's scheduled to be executed, so they go and save her. While Luke says, we got to go and save her, and Han agrees because of the payday he could get. He's interested in how much money he could get from saving a princess. And then Luke and Han pretend that Chewie is their prisoner and they go to the detention block to save Leia. They save her, but more stormtroopers come, who again shoot, actually 
shoot a lot of bullets but hit nothing a lot of blasters but hit nothing that they're aiming at again we see their inaccuracy and han and leia and luke have to escape through the garbage chute and luke is nearly drowned by a very large trash snake and oh just the idea of a trash snake makes my my skin crawl Ugh, it's creepy uh, they're all nearly crushed to death, but saved by R2-D2 just in time. And then Obi-Wan turns off the power to the tractor beam. And Han and Leia have this conversation after getting out of the garbage chute. Leia says, listen, I don't know who you are or where you come from, but from now on, you do as I tell you, okay? And Han replies, look, your worshipfulness, let's get one thing straight. I take orders from one person, me. For the Christian... Han has an unacceptable attitude. If our attitude is always, I take orders from one person, me, then we are in trouble in our relationship with God. To be a follower of Jesus is to follow Jesus and to take orders, if you will, not uh, to, to take orders from him and, and not do what we would want to do and what we want to be in control of. We take orders from Jesus. We take orders from him and instead of living the way that we want to live and doing the things that we want to do and how we want to do those things, we need to be able to submit to God and his ways and surrender control of our lives over to him. If we have this attitude of, I only take per orders from one person, me, we are in trouble. And then we have focused that rebel that is within us towards the wrong thing. We need to be rebelling against sin, against evil, against darkness, not against God. And if we have that kind of attitude of, I'm going to be in charge, I take orders from only me, we're rebelling against the wrong things. Next, Han, Leia, and Luke, and Chewie are on their way back to the Millennium Falcon. They have a shootout with the stormtroopers again, where the stormtroopers hit nothing. Then Obi-Wan walks down a, cor a corridor, and Vader is waiting for him, his lightsaber ready. Then Vader tells Obi-Wan, he is now the master. And Obi-Wan replies, only a master of evil, Darth. And Vader replies, your powers are weak, old man. And then Obi-Wan says, you can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Here's where we really see Obi-Wan as the Christ figure. Here's where it really starts to make sense. And what does it mean here that Obi-Wan, if he is struck down, if he dies, how could he be more powerful in death than, more, than in life? How can he be more powerful in death than in life? For Obi-Wan, it has to do with the Force and becoming one with the Force. To be able to be with Luke and communicate with him even when he's not physically in Luke's presence. I could see Jesus saying something very similar to the devil that Obi-Wan says to Vader. You can't win, devil. If you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Because Jesus, too, becomes more powerful in death than in life. In Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 17, we read this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that is Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. 
He too shared in their humanity. Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That's beautiful. And in Romans 6, 9 through 11, we read this. Now, we know that Christ has been raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has power over him. He died to sin once and for all with his death, but he lives for God with his life. In the same way, you also should consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive for God in Jesus Christ. Jesus' death pays the penalty we owed for sins. He takes our penalty upon himself, and by his death, he breaks the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And of course, we know that Jesus is more powerful in death because death does not have the final word. Jesus proves to be more powerful than death. Death cannot hold him. For Obi-Wan, death also does not have the final word. He's still with Luke. He's not physically with Luke, but he's still there. That's another way that Obi-Wan is like Jesus. Obi-Wan is still with Luke, but Jesus is going to send one to be with us, to be with everyone. He's not going to leave us or abandon us or forsake us. In John 16, 7 through 11, we read this, I assure you that it is better for you that I go away. If I don't go away, the companion, the Holy Spirit, won't come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will show the world what is wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will show the world that it was wrong about sin because they don't believe in me. He will show the world it was wrong about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and he won't see me anymore. He will show the world it was wrong about judgment because this world's ruler stands condemned. Obi-Wan doesn't leave Luke alone and Jesus doesn't leave us alone. He sends the Holy Spirit to be with us. Jesus hasn't forsaken or abandoned us. He sends someone to be with us everywhere and always. In the incarnation, Jesus couldn't do that. As fully human, Jesus was limited to being in one place at one time. That is the human experience. I cannot be in this place recording this and also in another place having another conversation with somebody else or being in another place doing something else with somebody else. It doesn't work that way. I am spatially limited to one time and one space. And so it was with Jesus in the incarnation as being fully human. But that's not so for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit maintains his omnipresence. So Jesus says it's better to have the Holy Spirit because he can be everywhere. He can be with all of us. And in Jesus' death, he becomes more powerful than in life because he's that, broken that power of death, and death could not hold him. Back to the movie, and everyone is wondering how they can board the heavily guarded Millennium Falcon when Darth Vader and Obi-Wan's lightsaber duel distracts the stormtroopers they get out of the way, and Luke and the rest of the crew run to the Falcon. Obi-Wan sees Luke going to the Falcon and lets Vader strike him down. But Obi-Wan just disappears. His body is gone when he's struck by Vader's lightsaber. I'm not certain if it would be fair to say here or not that Obi-Wan has died. His body isn't there. He's just disappeared. But it's, that's not so with Jesus. When Jesus dies. He doesn't disappear. He doesn't just go somewhere. He's dead. His dead body stays on the cross until it's taken down. Jesus is dead, no longer alive. His his body is there, no longer has life within it. He is dead. I'm not sure that the same could be said for Obi-Wan. Does Obi-Wan really die or does he just 
go to be one with the force. It would appear that he just goes to be one and doesn't truly experience death, but Jesus truly experiences death. Back to the movie, in a shootout with the stormtroopers and the others ensues, and we and Luke hears Obi-Wan's voice tell him, run, Luke, run. And he does, and they all board the Falcon and get away. See, Obi-Wan hasn't left him alone. We'll discuss more of this later because this isn't the last time that Luke hears Obi-Wan's voice, so we'll get into this. But Tarkin watches the Falcon fly away and asks Vader if he's sure the homing beacon is aboard the Falcon, and that it's a big risk, and this better work. And then Princess Leia says that they let him go, and she's sure that they're tracking him, but Han says that's not going to happen on his ship. Maybe Han should read Proverbs 16:18. Pride comes before disaster, and arrogance before a fall. Anyways, Han and the rest of the rebel base, and the rest go to the rebel base on one of the moons of the planet Yavin, and the Death Star approaches and readies to enter orbit of Yavin so it can destroy the the rebel base on the the moon. So the plan is, uh, the rebel base then discusses a plan of attack to take down the Death Star. The plan is to go with individual fighters instead of larger ships. There is one weak point on the Death Star, an opening only two meters wide that must be precisely hit in order to destroy the station. And the moon with the base on it will be in range of the Death Star in 30 minutes, and then the Death Star will be able to destroy the rebel base. And then Vader says this, this will be a day long remembered. It has seen the end of Kenobi. It will soon see the end of the rebellion. Well, Han gets his reward and then he's leaving. Luke goes and asks Han and Chewie to come with him, but Luke says no. And then he asks this question, what good is a reward if you ain't around to use it? That's a good point by Han. A reward isn't any good if you aren't around to use it. That is, if you have a reward that is only of this world. So maybe that's why we should seek a reward that's not so temporary or uncertain as money or possessions. In Matthew 6, 19 through 21, we read this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermins do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, what is this treasure? It's heaven. It's relationship with God. It's salvation and being in right relationship with God and being in right relationship with with other people. Money is not the treasure to chase. The kingdom of heaven is what we should be chasing after. Being like the man in the parable of the hidden treasure who finds this treasure that's hidden in a field, and he goes out and sells all that he owns. He gives his all so that he may be able to buy the field. We should do the same with the kingdom of heaven. We should give all that we have. We should give all that we are to get it, because it is worth it. The same cannot be said of earthly treasure. This leads to one of my favorite passages of Scripture. In 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. Tell people who are rich at this time not to become egotistical and not to place their hope on their finances, which are uncertain. Instead, they need to hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, to be rich in the good things they do, to be generous, and to share with others. When they do these things, they will save a treasure for themselves that is a good foundation for the future. That way, 
they can take hold of what is truly light. Do you want to take hold of what is truly light? I don't know about you, but I do. And truly life is not found in money or stuff or possessions or things. It's found through relationship with Jesus. Through looking to the hope we have in God. And to do good things for him. To be generous with others. To be in a right relationship with God. And to be in a right relationship with others. That is what is truly life. Living life to its fullest. Living life to its most complete. And that's what I want. Back to the movie, and Luke boards an X-Wing and hears Obi-Wan's voice again. Luke, the Force will be with you. Again, we hear Obi-Wan's voice. Even though he's not physically there, he's still present with Luke. The attack on the Death Star begins, and Darth Vader orders TIE fighters to be manned and go on the attack, and Vader himself gets into a TIE fighter. And then Luke hears Obi-Wan's voice again. Luke, trust your feelings. Again, Here's this idea of feelings with Obi-Wan and Luke. I'm not sure how great of advice this is, especially from the Christian perspective. Again, sometimes feelings can be trusted, as we said, but not always. We do have that intuition, that gut feeling that should be followed, but to always trust your feelings. No, we often feel that we want something or feel that we would like something or feel that we should do something that may be contrary to what God wants. I would say, instead of just trust your feelings, examine your feelings. Are they godly feelings or are they not? Are they your own feelings or is it something that God is leading you with? Examine your feelings. The fight continues and it does not look well for the rebellion. Someone tries to make the shot into the exhaust port to bring down the Death Star, but they miss. And then Luke (coughs) gets his turn to make his run. And Vader is behind him. Luke is targeting the exhaust port when he hears Obi-Wan's voice again. Use the force, Luke. Let go, Luke. Vader remarks, the force is strong in this one. And then Luke hears Obi-Wan's voice again. Luke, trust me. Luke turns off the computer aiming device and uses the force. Again, Obi-Wan is with Luke. Just as Jesus is with us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is with us. This is a similarity to Jesus along with Obi-Wan also sacrificing himself to save others. We didn't talk about that too much, but Obi-Wan sacrifices himself, distracts the stormtroopers so so that Luke and the others can get away. He sacrifices himself, a very Christ-like thing to do. And we also see that Obi-Wan has become more powerful in death than in life. Obi-Wan is with Luke, just like the Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us, and that how Jesus, that's how Jesus is with us always to the end of the age, just as Obi-Wan is with Luke. Now Luke continues to fight his target, and Vader is on his tail, then R2-D2 is hit, and the rebel, rebel base is in range of the Death Star, and Tarkin gives the order to fire when ready. And just as Vader gets Luke in his sights, Han comes in and shoots the TIE fighters behind Luke, and Vader's TIE fighter tumbles through space out of control. And then Han tells Luke, y'all clear, kid. Now let's blow this thing and go home. And Luke's shot is a direct hit. The Death Star is destroyed. The Rebel base is saved. And then Luke hears Obi-Wan's voice one more time. Remember, the Force will be with you. Always. So Obi-Wan is with Luke. But I don't think it's fair to say that Obi-Wan has been resurrected. 
I don't even know if it's fair to say that Obi-Wan has been killed. I don't know if it's fair to say that Obi-Wan has died. So so we can't say that Obi-Wan has been resurrected. But if Obi-Wan was resurrected, it is certainly not a physical resurrection. It's just some kind of spiritual resurrection. Now, this would be significantly different than the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection was not only a spiritual resurrection where his spirit, his soul comes back to life, but it was also a bodily resurrection. Jesus is physically resurrected from the dead. We do not see that with Obi-Wan. But in John 20, verses 24 through 29, we read this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he came to Thomas and said, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Jesus has a physical, bodily resurrection. Obi-Wan's, if it was even a resurrection at all, is not. Jesus appears physically in the body here to Thomas, who is doubting, who doesn't believe it, but then sees for himself with his own eyes, Jesus in the flesh, resurrected. Not only does Jesus appear to Thomas and the rest of the disciples, but as we saw earlier from the creed in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7, he also appears to Cephas and appears to more than 500 brothers and sisters at once and appears to James and all the apostles. So Jesus has appeared to, to many people. He rises from the dead, a physical resurrection. And someday, if you know Jesus, if we know Jesus, we have that hope, here we come again, we have that hope that we too will be resurrected that we can have a bodily resurrection like Jesus was. That is the hope that we have. And here we've come full circle as it comes back to the hope that we have as Christians and assurance that we will join with Jesus in his resurrection and live with him eternally. And folks, that is good news. Help me, Jesus. You're my only hope. Back to the movie. Invader flies away in his TIE fighter. The rebel, rebel base celebrates their victory. Luke and Han are presented medals by Leia for all those gathered at the rebel base. And for some reason, Chewbacca is left out. Seems a bit strange. You should have gotten a medal. I'm pretty sure they make up for that in a later movie. Anyway, then we see R2-D2 is repaired. The rebels applaud Han and Luke. Roll credits. A New Hope. Episode 4 has come to an end. And there we have it. The themes of hope. The cosmic battle of good versus evil. Obi-Wan is a Christ figure, the Force not making a very good analogy for the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's the review I see of the um, theological themes within Star Wars, A New Hope. But what did I miss? Are there other themes or theological ideas that you have seen that I've missed? I'd love to hear from you, so please reach out with any thoughts or comments or suggestions. If I've missed anything, go ahead and let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a lot of fun for me. I love being able to discuss theology through the vehicle of science fiction. So thank you. Thanks for listening. And 
I would encourage you, would love you for you to share this podcast on your social media or to tell a friend about it. And of course, you can keep track of what's going on with Theology and Sci-Fi on Twitter or Instagram. Just search Theology and Sci-Fi, all one word, and we spell Sci-Fi the correct way around here, S-C-I-F-I. So you can follow me on Instagram or Twitter or go on Facebook and search for Theology and Sci-Fi the podcast. Those platforms would also be a great way to reach out, to ask questions, to make a comment. Depending on how many I get, I'll try my best to answer you as quickly as I can. Or you can even email me at theologyandsci-fi at gmail.com and I will get back to you. But thank you. I truly enjoy this and look forward to the next time we dive into the world of lightsabers and the force because as I said earlier, there are lots more works in the Star Wars universe to examine. I'm sure at some point we will get to some of those. However, just a little bit of a preview here. For episode three, we're going to move from the silver screen to the printed word for the first time, and we're going to examine Ray Bradbury's classic Martian Chronicles. So for the next episode, I encourage you to go to your local bookstore if you have one in your town and to look for Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury and read it before the podcast is released. Now, the goal here for releasing podcasts is to release two a month for the next five months. So that will be 12 episodes in total in a six-month period, being two released a month. And we're going to see how sustainable that is. So keep an eye out for two episodes to be released in January of 2022. And again, episode three is going to discuss the book Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. It's not a necessity to read it before listening to the podcast. I just think that if you do, it'll probably make the listening experience more enjoyable, but it will not be necessary. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I truly appreciate it and look forward to hear from you and can't wait till we get to do this again in our next episode. For Theology and Sci-Fi, I'm Derek V. Trout. Thanks for listening. I suggest a new strategy R2. Let the Wookiee win.